Open up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 24 through 31. From doubt to decision. I like to start sometimes with with a story or an illustration, and, and I told my wife I was just struggling this week, and part of it is maybe because somewhere in the back of my mind I knew which story I wanted to use, and I was afraid to use it, um, because it's one of, in my own mind, it's probably one of the top three most embarrassing times in my life. <clears throat> and, and I know there are certain people here that will use it against me. We are a church of grace. Just want, to, just want to remind you. To my credit, I believe I was in first grade. So what would that make me? Eight? Nine? What's six? Even better. It, it had to be first grade because I'm pretty sure it took place in Pennsylvania and we moved out of Pennsylvania when I was going into second grade. So we'll go with that. This is a story that I believe you could go up to anybody in my, 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 like my parents or my brother. My brother's three years older than me and reference a part of this story. And I, I think all of them would immediately know exactly what you're talking about because they remember it well. We were going to dinner at a restaurant and my, my dad and my brother went in his car to, I guess, to get a car wash and, and get, get gas or something. My mom and I went on to the, uh, restaurant, and, and they met up with us when they were done, and it took them a long time. So we're sitting in the restaurant, we're just waiting and waiting, and they finally show up. And somebody asked, maybe it was me, I said, what took you so long? Why, why did it take so long? They said, well, we had to get a car wash, and the car wash was broken. And I guess I must have asked, well, how did you get it? Did you still get your car washed? And they said, well, and this is where it started. My dad and my brother can keep a straight face through anything. And they started spinning this tale. And I ate up every word of it. And it began with, well, they had a guy that was pushing the cars through the car wash. I'm a fairly logical person, even at six years old. And I thought... And, and I think I asked, didn't he get wet? Well, yes, he wore a raincoat, a yellow, ra- they were very specific. It was a yellow raincoat, and that kept the water off. And in my mind, and they just, they were going on and on. It just took a long time for him to push every car through. He was the only one doing it. I guess he was the only one that could do it. And then, you know, my brain started working again, and I said, but... Wasn't he getting hit by, by like the, the, the thing that comes down and scrubs and, and the thing that comes down and dries the car? I'm just thinking, isn't that dangerous? Well, he wore a hard, a hard hat. And, and, and they went on and they said, well, we felt so bad for him because the poor guy was just getting beaten up every single time as he pushed these cars through. And I, this story in my six-year-old mind, okay, this went on for like 10 or 15 minutes. They just kept stretching it out and adding in details, and I ate up every little bit of it until at some point, my dad and my brother started laughing. And I realized at that moment what a sucker I had been. Now, part of the embarrassment is that I was taken in by this story. Again, to my credit, I guess I was around six or seven years old. 
But part of it too was, in, I was mad. I was absolutely livid with my dad and brother. And I remember sitting there in the restaurant saying, how dare you? I trust you. Of course, if you tell me a story, I'm going to trust you. And there's, how could you believe that this could happen? And I'm like, but you're my dad. I'm supposed to trust you. I was, now fortunately, this wasn't like one of those ultra public embarrassing moments. Those are, I think, worse. This was just me and my family. But it does come up from time to time at family gatherings and they like to rub it in my face. So it's the story that keeps on giving. But I will tell you, in that moment, there was something inside of me, that naive, trusting aspect of me that didn't want to doubt what other people were telling me, that maybe just shrunk a little bit, kind of shriveled up just a little bit. And there was that trust that was no longer there. And every once in a while in my life, I think, I don't want to be taken in. I don't want to be taken in by, I mean, that was just a story, but what if it's real? What if it's money or my family or ministry? or something? I don't want to be taken in. I'm not going to be a sucker. And so, I think we all have those times in our life. Maybe it's not a yellow raincoat story, but a time in our life where we felt like we were taken advantage of. And we have a defense mechanism against that. It's the defense called doubt. And it starts causing us to question everything we hear. Wait a minute. What if? That was one of the most frustrating things of being a youth pastor was when I'd be teaching the youth and it was the constant, what about this? What if that? And just every little thing, you know, being a parent isn't all that different now, come to think of it. There's always that little, but wait, you didn't think about this. I meant that. And it's like, that's not what I'm talking about. But that doubt constantly creeps in and undermines what's going on. And so I want to talk about doubt today and I want you to think about ways that you have doubts in your own life. Now, don't get me wrong, doubts aren't all bad. There's a proper time to question things. Somebody tells you somebody's hiring somebody to push them through the car wash, you should probably doubt that, turns out. So I've learned. But we're going to look at maybe one of the most famous doubters of all time, a man, a disciple by the name of Thomas. So open up to chapter 20, verses 24 to 31, as we look at this passage. We're going to start by looking at the doubt that Thomas has and hopefully to identify some doubts that we have as well. So let me read for us verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand. And put my finger where the nails were. And put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Thomas is a key person in this passage. John, the gospel writer, is intentionally focusing in on Thomas here. We had the passage just before this that we covered last week. The disciples were together and Jesus appears to them. But we know that Thomas wasn't with them. We don't know a whole lot about Thomas from elsewhere in Scripture. But the little bit that we do know is not always a great picture of him. 
He didn't get the name Doubting Thomas just from this passage alone. Some of the others sort of help along the way. In chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Jesus says he's going to Judea. Lazarus has just passed away and he's going to go to the funeral and we know eventually raise raise Lazarus from the dead. And Thomas has this wonderful cry of faith. Uh, In chapter 11, verse 16, Thomas says, Let us also go that we may die with him. That's, That's Thomas for you. Thanks, Thomas, for that uplifting word of encouragement. In John chapter 14, Jesus is is talking to them, teaching them that he's going to, after the cross and resurrection, he'll ascend to heaven to prepare a place for them. It's this beautiful passage of he'll come back for them. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, he's just, Jesus, I don't get it. And I don't accept it. I don't know what you're talking about. I just don't get it. And then here we have this passage. Now, doubt can be good or bad. Doubt can lead to an investigation of truth. It can cause us to search deeper and look closely. That kind of doubt is good. I'm not sure... I don't want to be taken in, so I will investigate. I will search. I will go to where the truth is spoken, and I will listen. That's good doubt. But there's another kind of doubt that I think Thomas is struggling with, and I want to give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. I want to give him a little bit of benefit. I think he's he's riding a fence here between a good and a bad doubt. Because the bad sort of doubt is the doubt that says, I will not accept this even though it's staring me right in the face, it's a doubt that causes us to be completely unable to accept truth because it doesn't match up with what we think. That is a bad doubt. Verse 24 tells us Thomas was not with the other disciples. It doesn't tell us why, and I I don't want to read too much into this, but the context, I would suggest, is, is telling us that Thomas, in his doubt, wasn't getting together with the other disciples. Now, maybe he was busy, had a dentist appointment or something. I don't know. But I think that as the news was spreading, as Mary had seen the risen Lord, as Peter and John had gone into the tomb and saw that the body was no longer there, and and then as the disciples throughout that time were getting together and over the next week, for some reason Thomas was staying at a distance. And so that night of the resurrection, he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared before them. And this brings me to one of three problems of doubt that I want to look at today. And the first problem of doubt is that it can keep us from learning the truth. It can keep us away from the place where the truth is. We don't go. We don't show up. We don't gather with those that can help us and point us to truth. And I'll tell you as a pastor, I face this all the time with people. People that at one time said they believed in Jesus Christ. Maybe were active in the church. But then they start saying, I have doubts, and they quit going to church. That's like saying, I'm thirsty, so I'm not going to go to the faucet. This is where truth is. I'm not saying this is the sole place of truth. You can open up your own word in your own home. You can gather with Christians elsewhere. But the church gathered together is such a powerful display and proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ. And so Thomas, in his doubt, 
missed out on the first appearance of Jesus Christ because he wasn't with the other disciples. And that's the first problem of doubt. It can keep us from the place where truth is proclaimed or demonstrated. The other disciples tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas says he won't believe unless he sees. And more than that, he says, unless I, I don't care if you guys saw him, I don't care if you touched his wounds, I have to do it for myself. This is the second problem of doubt. It causes us not to listen to those we trust. It puts up a wall. These were his friends. He had traveled with them, spent time, possibly up to three years or so. They had gone through great difficulty together. And here, multiple people had seen Jesus. The rest of them had seen and spoken with Jesus that night. And yet he says, I don't believe you. And a wall has been driven between him and the other apostles. This leads to the third and and what I think is the ultimate problem of doubt. And this is one that challenges me and I think needs to challenge all of us. Doubt convinces us that we personally and individually are the only standard of truth. That's the insidious nature of doubt. It's not true until someone convinces you. Thomas will only accept what he sees and what he experiences. Doubt says that only we individually can know and only what we experience and can approve can be true. This automatically means everybody else either is or potentially is wrong. His doubt, the irony here, is that he was the one that was wrong and they were the ones that were right. But doubt basically convinces us I can never be the one that's wrong. So you have to convince me. But Thomas's doubt was keeping him wrong. It was keeping him from the place of gathering with the other disciples. It kept him from the first appearance of Jesus Christ. It was keeping him wrong. Wrong because he refused to accept their testimony. But something happened that changed all of this. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verses 26 to 28. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is a week later. After Jesus had raised from the dead on Easter morning, a week now has gone by. I wonder what that week was like for the disciples. I wonder how many conversations they had with Thomas as they ran into him and began to share more of what they had seen and heard. And and he begins to wonder, what's going on? Something changed so that that next time they gathered together, a week later, he was with them. 
And again, Scripture tells us they are in a locked room. The word there means a a door that is barred on the inside, locked on the inside. This is not just shut. it's, It's locked. It's barred. Nobody can get in. They were scared. Which is interesting because they have now seen the risen Lord, but they're still scared. I can identify with that. Not so much seeing the risen Lord part, but believing that he is risen and yet still being scared at times. I think we all get that way. But to their credit, they do gather together again, and to Thomas's credit, he is with them. This is the first step to overcoming doubt. Get together with people you trust, who you know will point you to truth. Which then leads in this situation to the ultimate step to overcome doubt. Look to Jesus. Even though the door is locked, Jesus shows up. And I said it last week and I'll say it again this week. There is no barrier that we can put up, no barrier that anyone in our lives can put up that can keep Jesus out. Jesus is very good at breaking through the barriers we put up. Whether that barrier is doubt or fear, Jesus can break through it. This is another miracle. Again, not only is Jesus alive, but he is able to go into places where no other living person can get through. It doesn't go into explanation of how. I'm not even going to try. But somehow the Son of God, Lord of heaven and earth, who created the wood that the door was probably made out of and everything that was in the walls, was able to pass right through them. And again he says, peace be with you. He comes into the room and he says, peace be with you. Now he had said that last week, right? He had gathered together and and we talked about the importance of that statement, peace be with you. Here again, now Thomas is there, but he's not just talking to Thomas. Why does he again say peace be with you? Well, one, because they're probably a little freaked out again. I I would imagine myself being somewhat startled, locked room and all, and, and suddenly Jesus is standing there. But I also have to think this wasn't just for Thomas's sake. Even though they had seen the risen Lord, There was still a lack of peace in their life. And again, I can identify with that. Having faith doesn't mean that that all of our struggles, all of our trials, all of our doubts just magically go away. We need to hear the reminder from our Lord himself who conquered sin and death. Peace. Have peace. Hold on to peace. But the focus in this passage is on Thomas. Which brings us to another problem with doubt. Doubt robs us of peace. Think about it. Is Thomas peaceful because of his doubt? We don't want to be taken in. We don't want to be the sucker. And and that's good. But if we refuse to accept truth, and instead just accept what we think is true, or what we can see and what we know it will not lead to more peace. So often, it's just the opposite. Because I have a a little bit of advice or insight for you. You and I, we were never made to be the ultimate standard of truth. It is a burden too big for us to bear. And so when doubt leads in that uh, that direction, that we are the only standard of truth, it puts such a burden on us. And there is no peace. Now, Jesus speaks to Thomas. He says to him, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, at what point did somebody say, Hey, Jesus, uh, Thomas here would like to touch your hands and your side because he has doubts. Or, or did Thomas maybe, Hey, uh, Jesus, you know, just so you know, I'm not going to believe until I can touch your hands and your side. That didn't take place. How does Jesus know? How does Jesus know that in these conversations throughout the week, that this is what Thomas is thinking, that this is his core issue? And the answer is, because he's God. He knows. Thomas's doubts can't keep him out. He's alive. And he's powerful. Jesus knows our doubts. And there's another beautiful thing in this passage. It's... It's kind of one of those in-between-the-lines sort of things. Look at what Jesus doesn't say to Thomas. He, he does tell him, stop doubting and believe. There, there's a little bit of rebuke in that. But he doesn't say to Thomas, how dare you have doubts? How dare you have any questions? He just says, Thomas, come and overcome your doubts. Look at my hands. Touch, touch there. He doesn't stand back and say, you shouldn't need this. I mean, Thomas, we spent several years together. You shouldn't need this. He doesn't say, Thomas, I suffered and died on the cross, and now you want to touch my hands so that you can prove that I'm alive? You shouldn't need that. He doesn't say that. He says, Thomas, come. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Jesus wants to break through. Thomas's doubts. We do not serve a God that is hidden and just waiting for us to figure him out or some deep secret. And if we could just find that, that crazy deep secret, then we can know God. That's what cults are all about. That's not Christianity. We have a God who wants to be known. And the book of John says, the Word, at the very beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God wants to be known. He sent His Son that we might know Him and that He might die in our place. Jesus wants to break through doubts. And if you're here today and you're just like Thomas, I won't believe. And that's like a challenge to the Son of God. I can almost picture Jesus rolling up his sleeves. I got this. He loves to break through doubts. There's an interesting point here as well. You see, Jesus' body, after he raises from the dead, still bears marks of the cross. I believe scripture teaches us that our bodies will be made new when we are resurrected. But there is something throughout scripture that is a constant reminder that Jesus will always bear the marks of the cross. So that every time throughout eternity when we look at him, we can remember he did that for me. He's the one that took my place and paid for my sin. And so Jesus tells Thomas, stop doubting. And believe. The word for doubt here can go two ways. 
And again, I said, I think Thomas is sitting on this fence and Jesus is issuing him a challenge to be very careful which direction he falls on this fence. One, as I said, is, is, is a doubt. It's a questioning. I want to know truth. I'm going to ask the questions. I want to seek truth. That's not a bad doubt, but we have to be careful with it. And then there's the doubt that is unbelief. I don't believe it. I won't accept it. And Jesus is cautioning Thomas and us today, don't do that. Stop that kind of doubting. Don't be unbelieving, but rather believe. And look at Thomas's declaration in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. What's interesting here is, remember what Thomas had said? Unless I touch his hands and I touch his side, I won't believe. Does Thomas touch his hand and his side? Maybe. But I have to imagine that if he did, John would have told us, because he's including a lot of details here. I think suddenly Thomas realizes, my standard doesn't matter. The Lord of heaven and earth is standing before me. It is enough. And this is one of the greatest statements in all the Gospels about who Jesus Christ is. Thomas's doubt has been overcome. His unbelief has been shattered by the truth that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is standing before him. And he declares, my Lord and my God. Now, we can take these two things and split them up, but I think it's best to keep it together. Together, there is no ambiguity. Jesus is Messiah. He is God with us. He is the Word who became flesh. He is God Most High, Lord of heaven and earth. All of these themes that John has been developing throughout his Gospel, he's saying, don't miss this. Thomas gets it. The one who doubted sees who Jesus Christ truly is is. It also leaves no room for some of the more popular ideas about Jesus. That Jesus is just a great teacher. Jesus is just a great role model. Thomas's statement here is so complete. He is the God who made all things. He is the sovereign Lord who rules over all things. Thomas is saying, I get it now. You're Jesus. You're my Messiah. You're my Savior and you are my Lord. This is a statement of great power. But it's also a personal declaration. Notice how he says, my Lord and my God. This is a statement of acceptance. It's a declaration that he is submitting to that truth. He's not just sitting back as an academic and going, yeah, I see it now. Mm -hmm. Scars, hands, side. Yep. You must be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. No, he's falling on his face and he's saying, you're my Lord. You're my God. I accept who you are. I submit to who you are. Now, I want to be careful here. Thomas's declaration doesn't make Jesus his Lord and God. Make no mistake, whatever your doubts are, you don't make Jesus Lord and God. You accept that he is Lord and God. He's already Lord and God. 
forever and ever. He is Lord Most High of heaven and earth. But here, Thomas, who wanted to be the one to stand back with his arms folded and say, nope, I'm not going to accept it, is falling on his face and saying, Lord and God. And the one known as Doubting Thomas becomes in John's Gospel a clear and ringing declarer of the truth about Jesus Christ. What a powerful testimony. You see, Thomas makes a decision. Look at verses 29 through 31. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas, in that moment, made a decision. He was confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and he made a decision. That's my Lord and my God. Jesus will make a comment on this decision and then John uses this situation as an explanation for why he wrote his gospel and what he hopes will come out of it. In verse 29, Jesus makes this statement to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. There's no condemnation here, as far as I can see in the text. It's good, Thomas, you see and you're believing. But he also talks about this other category of people. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think he's saying, well, they're better than you. I think he's saying there are two types of people. There will be those that see. That's what the Gospels are all about. They're the written testimony of those who saw the risen Lord and proclaimed the truth to us and wrote it down so that others, which include you and me, will be those that have not seen and yet have believed. It's the ongoing story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what happened to the disciples because they saw and believed. Acts records thousands of people coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The apostles spread out and the early church spread rapidly so that it covered, blanketed the Roman Empire. Think about what has happened from those who heard their gospel, who did not see and yet have believed. Those who accept the testimony of the eyewitnesses spread this truth around the world. For 2,000 years, the church has continued to spread, often in the worst of conditions, in places where governments and culture has tried to squash the truth of the gospel, the gospel breaks through. Because people who haven't seen Jesus, but believe the testimony of those who did. John's making a point here to his readers. There's a continuity between those who see Those who declare, those who hear, and those who believe. Some will believe by seeing, some will believe only by hearing. And John is confronting us with the same decision that Thomas had to make. The same challenge that confronted Thomas. The same doubts. We are the ones who have not seen. And there is a bold and implicit question. Please don't miss it. 
Will you believe? John leaves it hanging there in the air. He he looks at Thomas and it's like he's saying, what about you? I've written these things, he says in verse 31, that you may believe. I've written down my eyewitness testimony, what I saw with my own eyes. Are we going to be like Thomas and say, no, no, I won't accept it. Or will we also be like Thomas and say, I do accept it. My Lord and my God. These are written that you may believe. And that phrase that you may believe can mean continuing to believe. So even as a Christian, we need to be challenged in our faith. Do we still believe? Is our faith growing? Is it getting stronger and stronger? Reading the gospel is not just for those who are not yet saved or those who are struggling with doubts. It is like food and nourishment to the growing faith of a believer. Keep on believing. Keep on getting stronger in your faith. Keep on looking at the written testimonies that people saw the risen Lord and believe more and more. But it can also mean start to believe. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence. What are you going to do about it? Will you believe? The gospel is both the starting line of faith and the fuel that keeps it going. You never move on from the gospel. You can go deeper and deeper in the gospel, but it's the same gospel. Don't ever move on from it. And what is it we're to believe? Verse 31, that Jesus is the Messiah. This whole book from start to finish is a promise that though our greatest problem was sin and death and eternal separation from God, God would send one his promised Messiah, who would come and save his people. And John says, don't miss this. I believe John had a a Jewish audience in mind, and that phrase would mean so much to them. Don't miss this. This is your Messiah. The, The identity, this was their identity that they had wrapped their culture and their lives around. God was bringing his Messiah. We are the people waiting for the Messiah. And yet... So many of them missed it. And John's saying to to people he knew and those that would hear his gospel, don't be like that. Don't miss the Messiah. For us who aren't Jewish though, it has such a powerful message. Don't miss the fact that God had a plan from eternity past to send one to die in your place. We need the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Word who became flesh, who died in our place, the conqueror of sin, conqueror of the grave, conqueror of death, and conqueror of doubts. Don't miss the life that Jesus gives. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Life in His name. Eternal life, new life, the life you were created for, to live in the presence of God eternally and unashamed. Man, we need life today. People struggle to find a reason for life, a purpose for life, meaning to go about our day-to-day activities. The problem is, this world, our culture, Our situation can't give us that meaning. 
And so, so many people are struggling, looking for meaning, looking for life, and yet you share the gospel with them. Well, I won't believe that. You're holding at arm's distance the one thing that is the actual answer to all of your questions. But we don't want to be taken in. John is using this situation with Thomas to call everyone who reads or hears this gospel to make a decision. And so I call to you today, will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Will you, like Thomas, declare, my Lord and my God, and accept who Jesus Christ is? Will you believe or will you doubt? Maybe you've had a situation in your life where somebody took advantage of your trust. Maybe it was even a lot more serious than some guy in a yellow raincoat. But we all carry around wounds. And those wounds build up into just a big pile of doubt. And we say, I'm not going to be taken in again. You won't get me. I know what's right. I know what's true. And you won't convince me. But we have eyewitnesses saying, Jesus Christ is no longer dead. He went through the cross. He conquered sin and death. And He is alive forevermore. Don't let your doubt pull one over on you. Because you might be taken in by the very thing you think is keeping you from being taken in from anything else. Our mission statement as a church is to make and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. It's why we exist. It's why we get together. I hope we have fun doing it. I hope you enjoy each other's company. I hope you like the the music and food when we have it. I hope you like the renovated areas. But it's not who we are. Not at all. All of that is just a tool to make and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I love that here, John is saying in his gospel, that's why I'm writing this. Will you believe? Will you continue to believe and grow in that faith? Are we going to fold our arms and say, I won't accept it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love that you are a God who loves us enough to break through our doubts. At the right time and in the right way, you break through to us. And our doubt isn't strong enough. The locked doors, physically or otherwise, in our lives are not strong enough to keep you out. But we are faced with a question. Will we believe? You have done so much to tell us who you are. To present who you are to us. You came in Jesus Christ to live among us. The word became flesh. Then he went to the cross in our place. Suffered and died. For our sin. Taking our punishment. Paying it in full. And then he rose from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. And Father, it grieves me 
to think that there may be some in this room with that powerful truth being proclaimed this morning who still will say, I won't accept it. And it grieves me to think of those in our lives who aren't here, who need to hear this truth and yet their doubts keep them at arm's distance. Maybe even from people in this church that want to share the truth with them, but they know it's difficult that people won't listen. May this passage serve as an encouragement to us of the power of the gospel to break through even those who doubt. And I pray, Father, may we be counted among those who believe as we live our lives in a declaration that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. In his name we pray, amen.